remain standing for the sermon text, which is from Romans 5. I'm going to read from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, because we're going to be in this passage for the next few weeks. So listen carefully, because this is God's infallible word to us this morning. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on the hearing and preaching of it. Father, help us to understand this rich and yet in some ways complicated text. Help us to unpack it, to believe it, and to do it, and to apply it, and to live out of it as a congregation and as individual Christians. We pray that your spirit who inspired it would be among us as we meditate on it. May we do so in a way that's pleasing to you ask for this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Quick show of hands of everyone who brought their thinking cap. Oh, oh no, okay, I see a I should have sent out an email. In the coming weeks, we'll need to make sure we bring our thinking caps to church. Because we've come to 
another, I guess, another difficult but extremely important section of the book of Romans. The last 10 verses of Romans 5 deal with every person's union with Adam and every believer's union with Christ. Every person's union with Adam, naturally, and then every believer's union with Christ through conversion. Our, our union with Adam, which begins at conception, leads to eternal death. Paul says, our union with Christ, which begins at conversion, leads to eternal life. That's one way of overviewing the point here. Union with Christ is one of the most important doctrines in the Bible. And to understand it, we first must understand our union with the first Adam. Adam in the garden, the first man. I said that we need to put on our thinking caps because this is a notoriously difficult passage. Paul breaks off, you know, he's in the middle of the first sentence in verse 12, he breaks off with this long parenthetical statement and then there are parenthetical statements within the parenthetical statement before he gets back to his point. And yet it's central to our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of God, our understanding of our relationship with God. The Scottish pastor and theologian James Stewart was right when he said that union with Christ is the heart of Paul's religion. The heart of Paul's religion is union with Christ, our spiritual union. John Murray, the old Reformed professor at Princeton and then Westminster Seminary, went further, saying that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of Scripture. Not just Paul, not even just the New Testament, but all of Scripture. Union with, as Paul says at the end of verse 14, the one to come, who was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Arthur Pink wrote, The subject of spiritual union is most, the most important, the most profound, and the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred Scriptures. And yet, sad to say... There is hardly any subject which is now more generally neglected than this one. The very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing Christian circles. He, he's writing that a hundred years ago or so. It's more true now than it was then. I'm afraid pink is right. The idea of our spiritual union with Adam and our spiritual union in Christ, with Christ, is unknown among many believers. And if that's true of you, then Romans 5, 12 to 21, provides an opportunity to remedy that situation. The challenge is, as one commentator put it, that I read this week, the challenge is that this central doctrine is taught in this passage primarily, and it is probably the most difficult passage to untangle in all of Paul's letters, which are known for not always being easy in the first place. But we're going we're gonna to dive in, and with God's help, we're going to grow in our understanding of spiritual union, both with Adam and with Christ. It's been a while since we've been in Romans, so I'll first, let's back up a little bit. I'm first going to give an overview of, of the, I'm going to overview the broader context kind of orient ourselves on the map. And then I'm going to narrow in on verses 12 to 21 that I read and give a summary of Paul's 
argument, maybe from a different, couple different perspectives. And after that, we'll focus in more on verses 12 to 14, which you'll notice on your handout is in bold font, because that's the sermon text. That's what we'll focus in on for the remainder of the sermon. So first, where are we in our exposition of the book of Romans? How does verses 20, uh, 12 to 21 fit with this whole letter? We've got to answer this question first because Paul opens verse 12, you'll notice, with the words, for this reason. Maybe some translations say, therefore, something like that. So he's connecting it. He's explicitly connecting the second half of Romans 5 to the first half. In the first half of Romans 5, Paul established the assurance of our salvation in Christ. Remember that? In my sermons on verses 1 to 11... Uh, that was last year, I summarized Paul's argument in six points. And we called these the foundations of hope. Let me remind you what they are. And if you have your Bible open to Romans 5, you can, you can follow along. I'll give the verse numbers as I review here. Number one, we have the assurance of our salvation because, verse 1, God has made peace with us through the atoning cross of Christ. Number two, we have assurance of our salvation, verse two, because we have access to God. We've been brought into the the throne room of God. We've been brought into a new relationship with the king and creator of the whole cosmos. And And we have access to his throne of grace. Number three, we have the assurance of our salvation, Because, again, verse 2, we have the hope of glory, what Paul elsewhere calls the blessed hope. We are certain that we will one day see God and experience firsthand the fullness of his glory. What a wonderful thought. Number four, we have the assurance of our salvation because in verses 3 and 4, we can see how our pain Our afflictions, our sufferings, our setbacks, our frustrations in this world, which are many, produce in us even more hope. They don't reduce our hope, Paul says. They multiply it by God's grace. And they reduce that hope that is in the world to come. Wonderful, wonderful logic there that Paul uses. We're able to rejoice in our sufferings because we see God's purpose in them. They're storing up a weight of glory, as he says in 2 Corinthians. Number five, we have the assurance of our salvation because, verse five, the love of God, love this image, the love of God has been poured out by God into our hearts, by the Holy Spirit, it says. So God has poured his love, which is to say he's poured himself, God is love, into the center of your inner being. This is our subjective hope, our internal hope, our personal hope, the hope that lives inside of us because God and his love live inside of us. And then finally, number six, we have the assurance of our salvation in Christ because verses six to eight, the God-man, Jesus Christ, died for us. And not just that, it says he died for the ungodly. He died for us when we hated him, when we were unrighteous and wicked. Not, not when we were his friends. It's not that we were 
wicked but still friends. We were wicked and ungodly and at enmity with God. We weren't as friends as we are now. We were his sworn enemies, and yet God and Jesus went to the cross for us. So when Paul says, for this reason, in verse 12 in our text today, all that's in the background, and what he's doing is he's joining the two halves of Romans 5 together by the themes, as we'll see more and more in the coming weeks, by the themes of hope and assurance. And so, in a, in a, in a sense, I called it the foundations of hope, right? But now he's even going to go below and say what's underneath even the foundation. And that's what 11 to 21 Paul's point is that in verses 11 to 21, the assurance and hope that was trumpeted in verses 1 to 11 are firmly established. And he's going to help us understand the logic of it. So, so you know, to the, you know, how does it work? Why? What, what's the way this plays out? Well, Jesus, the last Adam has overcome the spiritual death that entered the world through the first Adam. Paul wants believers to know that the power of grace, this grace that he's been talking about in the whole book, is stronger than the power of sin and death. The effect is stronger. The source is more powerful. You can be certain that the reign of grace in Christ will trump the reign of death in Adam. And, and Paul knows that he's making astonishing claims so far in his letter, and especially in verses 1 to 11 that I just overviewed. So in verse 12 and following to the end of the chapter, he anticipates, as he often does, questions. Paul, how, how can you be so certain and hopeful in light of the grip, the strong grip, that sin and death obviously have on humanity. Paul answers this question in the following verses, in the second half of Romans 5. So let's now focus the lens a little bit and overview 12 to 21. Here, here Paul gives a bird's eye view of the whole history of salvation. I told you to focus in, but in a way, he's broadening the, the, the scope. He, he paints with broad strokes. His canvas is human history, and his scope is absolutely universal in terms of humanity. I did it twice last week. Let's see if I can just do it once this week. His scope is universal. And when I say that, I mean he says nothing of the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Right? He's, he's talked a lot about that distinction so far in his book. But here, no, he's, he's not thinking about that at all. He has all of humanity in view. And here's the point. Every person who has ever been born, every human being in the history of the world, stands in relationship to one of two men. Everyone is spiritually United to one of two men, Paul says. And the, and the actions of these two men determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them, who are united to them. 
That's how the bad news works. That's how the good news works. If you're a member of mankind, then either you are united to Adam, which means you're under the sentence of death, eternal death. When, when Paul uses death in these passages, he's talking about the wages of sin, not just physical death. That's there. He's, he's talking about physical and spiritual and the spiritual death is, is more important. So if you're either you're united, either you are united to Adam, which means you're under the sentence of eternal death that his disobedience earned, or you are united to Jesus, which means you've received the eternal life that his obedience earned. Everyone falls into one of those two categories. The actions of Adam and Christ are similar in that way. There's, there's parallel there in that both have eternal significance, eternal consequences for humanity, for every person, one way or the other. But their actions are not equal in power. And that's one of Paul's main points. Did you hear that as I was reading? He kept, he's comparing, but he's also contrasting in 11 to 21. There's a similarity here in, these, in this headship, this covenantal headship, but, but there's a huge difference. They don't have the same power. Adam's disobedience was powerful. It introduced sin and death into the world, and it continues to introduce sin and death into the hearts of of all human beings every time a human being is conceived. But Christ's obedience is far more powerful, and it is able to overcome all the negative effects of Adam's sin. And so the great theme that runs through the passage is that the power of Christ's act of obedience overcomes, overpowers Adam's act of disobedience. If you've received what Paul calls the, the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness in Christ, he says at one point later on, then you possess the security and joy of knowing that the reign of sin and death have been defeated. For you and in you, the reign of of grace and righteousness and eternal life have defeated them. They've been dethroned. So Paul goes into great detail in this section showing how the logic of salvation, the logic of union with Christ works. How the cross overcomes and reverses sin and eternal death. On the one hand, he teaches us that sin goes deeper even than we thought, than we can imagine it infects everything, and, there's, and, and it's there the moment each person is conceived by his Adamic parents. But on the other hand, Paul teaches the good news that Christ's obedient death on the cross addresses the disaster of sin at every single point, and the grace of Jesus goes even deeper than sin. That's, that's one of the main takeaways here. I mean, applications. So now let's focus in on more on verses 12 to 14, which is really Paul's entire argument in condensed form. He, he covers everything in these three verses, and then he unpacks it, adds a little bit to it in the rest of the chapter. Verse 12, if you're looking, presents three, a three-stage chain reaction. As I reread it, 
from the handout. See if you can identify the three stages. For this reason, verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death entered through sin, in this way death spread to all people, all men, because all people sinned or have sinned. Give you a hint, the three stages are the three points in your outline. First, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Second, physical and eternal death entered the world as the penalty, the consequence of for sin. And third, this eternal death has spread to all sinners, the first part of the third point there. Then verses 13 and 14 go on to explain how sin and death reigned, all, you know, not just between Adam and Moses, but all the way up to Christ. And then when Christ came, he established a new reign, reign of life and grace. So, so sin and death were the king and queen, the undisputed rulers of humanity, of souls, but then grace and life came and dethroned them. That's, that's at least every believer's story. Grace and life reign in every believer because in every believer is Christ, the crucified and risen King. So there's a new reign inside of you as well as cosmically. Okay, I know that was... That was Long introduction and a lot of dense stuff. So to lighten it up a bit, I'm going to administer a pop quiz. You know it's bad when a, when a test lightens things up. But there's only one question on this exam. And if, you're, if you've been to my Sunday school classes, you know I'm, these are always pretty easy, or at least... I give, I give the answer away usually if no one's brave enough to, to answer. It's, it's a multiple choice question, and there are only two choices. So at, at, at worst, it's 50-50 for you. Here's the question, and, and I'll grade it covenantally, so if one person gets it right, they're the, they're the representative. But seriously, which of the following statements is true. A, you sin because you're a sinner. B, you're a sinner because you sin. Okay, so which of those statements is true? A, you sin because you're a sinner. B, you're a sinner you're called a sinner, you're considered a sinner because you sin. Raise your hand if you think the answer is A. Okay. All right, that's, that's, that's the right answer. I won't ask now if, for hands for B. <clears throat> We're natural-born sinners. Think about this. We sin for the same reason that thorn bushes produce Thorns, right? A thorn bush isn't a thorn bush because it produces thorns. 
might be how we identify it to some extent. No, it produces thorns because it's a thorn bush. It's what thorn bushes do. You're not a sinner because you sin. No, you sin because you're a sinner who inherited the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. This is part of what Paul means in the first part of verse 12 when he says that sin entered the world, and we could say entered humanity, entered every aspect, but especially humanity, through Adam. Okay, and we know that the effects of this sin are, are cosmic, okay? But we're going to focus on how it entered into the humanity part of the world today. Sin entered the world, and as a result, it enters every human heart, as I've already said, at the moment of conception. So every human being is a chip off the old block. Or as one of my kids likes to say, a French fry off the old potato. We're, we're acorns off the old oak tree. You know, we're apples that don't fall far from the tree. If someone says he is without sin, therefore, he is lying and he's trying to make God out to be a liar. It, it's, it's like a thorn bush saying that it doesn't produce thorns. Of course it does. It's a thorn bush. Now this passage, not just verse 12, but verses 12 to 21 as a whole, is one of the places where we get the doctrine of... What, what doctrine am I talking about right now? Somebody blurt it out. You made brave enough? It's two words. Original sin. Job, Rob. Original sin is the teaching that every descendant of Adam, except Christ, of course, if I ever don't say that exception, you know it's there if I forget, but every descendant of Adam, except Christ, inherits Adam's guilt and Adam's corrupt nature at conception. Remember what David says in Psalm 51. He confesses, in sin, my mother conceived me. So sin is there at conception. At the moment David was conceived in his mother's womb, he was united to Adam and inherited Adam's sin and guilt and corrupt nature. Something that does not fully go away, even after conversion, does not fully go away until death. When God frees us from the presence of sin in addition to the power and penalty of sin. G.K. Chesterton famously said that modern theologians like to question original sin, even though it's actually the only doctrine, he says, that can be proved empirically, that has so much proof in favor of it. Chesterton pointed out that we've got thousands of years of human history that verify over and over again the truth the obvious truth, the inescapable truth of original sin. It's the only way, it's, it's the only thing, the only doctrine, the only philosophy that can explain what we see and experience and know. Just look around. Look at history. Look, look, look at the wars and the genocides of the 20th century alone. Look at the propensities of all infants and toddlers you know. They don't have to be taught how to be selfish or angry or deceptive or whiny. It comes very naturally from their parents and their parents all the way back to the first parents. Look at your own heart and the layers of 
wickedness, unfathomable wickedness, layer upon layer. Eight billion descendants of Adam are walking on the earth right now, and not one of them managed to escape the clutches of total moral corruption. How do we explain this? The only satisfying explanation is the one that Paul offers. Every human being is by nature united to the first man, the father of humanity. Adam is the covenant head of the human race. And in Adam, we are guilty and corrupted. Now, this this teaching doesn't, doesn't land well on the ears of modern Western Individual, individualists like ourselves. It sounds strange and it seems unfair to think that Adam's descendants would get saddled in this way with his sin. As, as individualists, we tend to think that each man is an island. Each person rises or falls, succeeds or fails according to his own actions, his own decisions, his own abilities. Everyone is a distinct, autonomous, self-governed unit. I am the master of my own fate, my own destiny. But the Bible paints a radically different picture. Rather than human isolation, God's word teaches human solidarity as the basic reality. And the Bible is not altogether unique in this. Other cultures, and especially other periods in history, have understood better than we do how this basic reality of how humanity and cultures and nations and families and tribes and clans are interconnected. Most cultures, in fact, throughout human history, have accepted the truth that, in, that the individual is a part of a whole family, clan, nation, tribe. An individual is who he is at a fundamental level because of where he was born, when he was born, who he was born to, and those sorts of things, that sort of thing. Now, I I said that the Bible is not altogether unique in presenting this perspective but it is unique in one regard. Only the scriptures teach that every human being is who he is at the most fundamental level, naturally, because of his solidarity with Adam, because of his natural-born union with the first man. In theology, Adam's representation of all mankind in this way is called Federal Headship. That's in the title of the sermon. Federal Headship. It's kind of the maybe fancy name. The word federal comes from the Latin word that means covenant. Okay, covenantal. So another name for federal headship is simply covenant headship or covenant representation. A federal head or a covenant head is a person who represents and stands in for those who are in covenant with him. 
every human at every moment of his or her existence has a covenant head. You, you, there's never a time when that's not true of you. There, there are no exceptions to that rule. No moments in your existence where it's not true. You always have a covenant head who represents you and who stands in for you, whose actions are in some way credited to you, counted as yours, and you're standing before God. Always. So when you go to the store or drive down the road or attend a concert, you're seeing people and interacting with people who have a federal head. Either they're still united to Adam or they have been transferred to Christ's headship by faith alone. That's true of everyone here. Every person here is under one of those headships. By faith, we have been transferred to the headship of Christ so that he stands in for us. He represents us. His actions get counted as ours. So there are only two options. From conception to death, you're never without a federal head. And the difference between going to heaven and going to hell is a matter of who your covenant head is when you die. This highlights that it's not fundamentally about what you do that gets you into heaven. It's about who your covenant head is. I'm going to say that again. The difference between going to heaven and going to hell is a matter of who your federal head is at the point of death. If Jesus is your covenant representative, then his righteousness will be counted as your righteousness on judgment day. If Adam is your covenant representative, then his sin as well as your sin that you've added to it, that you've piled on top of it, will be counted against you on judgment day. Do you see how that works? Original sin, though, it does offend our sensibilities. It infringes on our individualism. And yet it's a necessary doctrine. As I've already said, it provides the only satisfying explanation for the universal evil that we see everywhere we look, whether we're looking outside or inside. Blaise Pascal, in a famous passage, put it this way. Original, he's highlighting here how it's not completely uh, reasonable in the sense that we, we, we can't tie up all the logical loose ends on how this actually works. The Bible doesn't spell it out the mechanisms and all this. But he says, original sin is foolishness to men, and I admit it to be without reason. He's not saying it's like contradictory or something like that. He's just saying our ability to reason can't get to the bottom of this. But this foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of men. For without this doctrine, we, what can we say that man is? His whole state depends on this imperceptible point. End quote. So the wickedness that characterizes all of humanity, all of history, demands an explanation. Why do people so consistently engage in unrighteousness? And Paul says that in this passage that human solidarity with Adam is the explanation. And even when we're not united with Adam anymore, because he's not our covenant head anymore, Christ is, we still have a solidarity with Adam that we experience every day, right? 
And that's the explanation. Every act of ungodliness can be traced back through our parents to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. To our first father's sin. No other theory has ever come even close to explaining the consistency and the depth of mankind's chronic wretchedness. We protest Adam's covenant representation. We, we protest because it doesn't seem just. Federal headship seems unfair. It rubs us the wrong way. To think that we, and we were talking about this in our, in our family Bible time the other day, to think that we inherited the guilt and the corruption of someone else's sin. We, we didn't get to decide, you know, to make him our covenant head and all, all these questions. After all, I wasn't there. How can I be blamed for what someone else did? Plus, we might even reason, probably all of us have at some point, if I had been picked to be the first Adam, I wouldn't have sinned. You know, you hear the children talking about what they would have done, and, and we as adults can do it too. If, if you're a female, you might think, if God had picked me to be the first woman, I would have righteously told the serpent to go to a different place. Now, I remember as a child being incensed by Adam and Eve's decision. I actually remember a couple different points where I was when I was thinking about this, just very self-righteously. And, and I remember talking with friends at one point about how they ruined it for all of us. I just knew that I would have made a better choice. But would I have? What, what evidence is there for that? How can I be so sure I would have done better than Adam when every day I agree with his decision? Th think about the, the inconsistency there of, of even thinking that. Every time I sin, which is often, I'm, I'm giving a hearty amen to Adam's disobedience. Beloved, as long as we continue to agree with Adam's sin, we're in no position to daydream about how we would have done better if we had been the first parents. As long as we continue to confirm our solidarity with Adam and his sin, we're in no place to complain about how it was unfair to inherit his sin. If you're so, I'll put it this way, if you're so incensed by Adam's bad choice, then prove it to me. Stop repeating and multiplying Adam's bad choice every day and then I'll take you seriously. If you really hate the corruption that you inherited from Adam, then stop being corrupted. Now, I know your response is, well, pastor, I can't. That's the whole point. You know, we're, we're Calvinists. We believe in total depravity. I I'm unable to stop. You've been telling me that solidarity with Adam, it's unavoidable. I'm unable to rid myself of Adam's corruption. I'd be a liar, you said, if I said that I could. And my response to that would be, Sure, but it just so happens that you always do what you want to do. Your corrupt nature never forces you to do anything you don't want to do. In Christ, Paul says you have a way out of every temptation. Your, your, your sin is always at some level, then, 
exactly what you have decided because it's what you want to do. It's your agreement. You're only enslaved to your sin to the extent you allow yourself to be. It's the great mystery of our situation now, of being freed from sin, but not ever becoming sinless in this life. But in that mystery is the reality that we are enslaved to our sin to the extent that we are, to the extent that we allow ourselves to be. So don't blame Adam for what you are fully on board with. Don't blame Adam for what you are fully on board with in your, when you sin. Now, I understand Paul says that there is a sense in which we do what we don't want to do. So there is, that, that's that mystery I'm talking about. There are both things going on. But he doesn't say that we don't want to do it at all because we do do it. We're not being coerced ever. Well, in verse 12 then, I want you to see where I'm getting some of this. Uh, and then it's going to be later in the text as well as we unfold this, uh, uh, unpack this text. But in verse 12, I want you to see how Adam moves, excuse me, Paul moves from Adam's sin to ours. Do you see that progression? In the first part of verse 12, Paul teaches that Adam's disobedience is the fountainhead of humanity's sin and death. It, it's, the, it's typologically and theologically at the, at the fountainhead, at the beginning. It's the fountainhead of the, of the sin and death problem, we could call it, if we want to package it. But then in the last part of verse 12, Paul says that death is also the result of what? Our personal, individual sins. So there's a, there's a sense in which it's the result of both Adam's sin and our sins that we pile on top of Adam's original sin. You see, the fact is, the first chance we got, we affirmed our solidarity with Adam. As soon as we were able to do evil, we did it. As soon as we were able to agree with Adam, we agreed heartily. Humanity confirms over and over again, day in and day out, that God chose the perfect covenant head for us. On what basis do we think we could have done better? And brothers and sisters in Christ, apart from God's saving grace, you and I, like the world, would have confirmed over and over again throughout all eternity that Adam was exactly the right representative for us, the right federal head, the one who represented us well, accurately. We would have never disputed it. In verse 13, Paul interrupts his thought, as I said earlier, to address an objection that popped up in his mind when he got to the end of verse 12. Before he even finished, it's not even a complete sentence. Um, in fact, I, I, there's a parenthetical from verse 13 all the way to 17. And the New King James actually puts it in parentheses. Um, but this first part of the parenthetical 
answers an objection. Paul does this a lot. He's, he's writing or dictating, more likely, and he gets to a point. He's like, oh, I need to back up here and lay some more groundwork for what I'm about to say. And that's what he's doing here in verse 13. Okay, this is going to get a little complicated, but so just if you're, if you're sleepy, wake up and put that you know, thinking cap tight on your head. Earlier in Romans, Paul said, where there is no law, there is no what? Transgression. So that's back in chapter 4. Well, he needs to explain then his statement at the end of verse 12 here in chapter 5 that all sinned, including those not under the law, who don't have the law, those between Adam and Moses. Adam was given law. Israel was given law, but the people in between, they, they died too, and everybody that's not a part of Israel died. How, how, does, how does that work? So he says in verse 13, sin was in the world before the law. Okay, so he's kind of qualifying what he said in chapter 4. Sin was in the world before the law, but, but he realizes there's tension. There's tension between that statement, what he said earlier. So in his next sentence, the, the end of verse 13, he acknowledges the tension. In, in my translation, and though sin is not reckoned where there is no law, okay, I'm going to say what I said earlier. I just said that sin was in the law before the law. And though sin is not reckoned where there is no law, as I said before, in some sense, still, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. That means who didn't have the law that God gave to Adam or to Moses, who is a type of the one to come. So Adam's a type of the one to come. Okay, we've got to unpack this. Now, when Paul says that sin is not reckoned where there is no law, we know from the book of Romans itself that that's not an absolute statement. It's not true in every single sense. We know this because back in chapter 2, we know he's not, uh, you know, schizophrenic or something like that. He, he remembers what he wrote. In fact, that's why he's bringing this up, because he remembers what he wrote. But back in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said very plainly, no uncertain terms, that all who sin without the law, those who don't have Moses' law, or certainly not Adam's law in the garden, those who sin without the law will what? Perish. That's judgment, eternal death, apart from the law. So they're going to be judged apart from the law. And that same verse, that same passage, he says those who are under the law will be judged by the law. So he's, he's talking about two different kinds of judgment. Those who are under the law will be judged a certain way. Those who are not under the law will be judged. They're not, they're not going to get to go to heaven just because they don't have the law. They're just going to be judged in a, in a different way back in chapter 2. I think it's 12 and 13. So sin still sins, sin still sins people to hell, even where there's no law. And we know this even from just chapter 5, verse 13 itself, where Paul says that death was ruling like a king before God gave the law of Moses. I mean, he's, he's saying, again, what he said back in chapter 2. There's still death, judgment, eternal death. So when Paul says sin is not reckoned where there is no law, he isn't teaching that sin is not reckoned against them in any sense at all. He's, he's just making a distinction, the two different kinds of people and judgments. Those who sinned without the law experienced the punishment of physical and spiritual death because of their sins. And so Paul's point is that their sins, though still deserving of eternal judgment, those not in the law, under the law, 
they were not counted against them in the same way that Adam's transgression against God's law was counted against him. Or in the same way as Israel's transgressions against, of, of the Mosaic law were counted against Israel. When Adam and Israel violated commandments spoken specifically by God himself, that was worse. God specifically spoke these. He revealed them with his mouth. And so the seriousness of that sin is heightened. It's increased. Their, their rebellion was even more defiant in character. Sin increases, and, and Paul even says that later. Sin increased where the law came. Sin increases and takes a sharper profile where the law is present. And that's his point here. So when Paul says in verse 14 that death reigned over the people who lived between Adam and Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, they didn't have a direct law from God, he's saying that even people who do not sin against direct commandments from God still pay for their sins. And what is the wages of sin? It's death. Death for everyone. No one escapes that just because you don't have the law. The reign of death went unchallenged for a long time, didn't it? At the end of verse 14, Paul transitions to the better covenant representative. And that's, that's where he's going in this whole passage. He's, he's wanting to get to Christ, the better man, the one to come, he calls him, who would be the righteous federal head that Adam was supposed to be, that was, he was called to be, but he failed to be. You see, the reality that God deals with us through a federal head, through a covenant representative, might offend us on the surface, but it's actually very, very good news. Because it's the only way any of us could be saved. If you had to represent yourself as an individual before God's throne, you would have no defense before God that would stand up in his courtroom. But if there, if there were an obedient man, a perfect Adam, a, a second Adam, who obeyed and was perfectly righteous, then he would be able to represent you in God's courtroom. That would be good news, right? But it is good news. It's true. Federal headship is bad news if Adam is your head still, but, you know, because in Adam, you stand before God as guilty, and as guilty as he is, and as guilty as you are. But federal headship is good news if Christ is your head, because in Christ, you stand before God just as righteous as Christ is. That's how the representation works. That's how the union works. His righteousness, it's, it's a true union. It's a true solidarity. It goes all the way down so that his act is truly yours before God in the courtroom. It's great news that God deals with us through a federal head. Don't be offended. Give thanks. Because our first federal head was not the final one. That's the good news. It's not good news in itself that God deals with us through a federal head. It's good news because the first one is not the last one. 
He was only a type, Paul says, of the one to come, the one in the future from Adam. Federal headship means that we can have a relationship with God that would be impossible if we were isolated individuals who had to stand before God on our own merits. If God had chosen to judge you, us, as individuals apart from our, our, our union with a federal head, a covenant head, then we would perish. Our only hope of salvation is that we will be judged on the last day in union with Christ. Let's pray and give thanks for this wonderful truth. Our God and our Father, thank you for becoming our Father through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making your Father our Father through your obedience, all the way to the cross. We rejoice that the power of the cross, the power of your grace, the power of your resurrection life overcomes and demolishes the power of Adam's sin and death that we inherited and that we continue to agree with when we sin. Thank you for covering all of those sins, for covering our continued solidarity with Adam that rears its head. We thank you that we have been redeemed from sin's guilt, from Adam's guilt, and also from sin's grip. And we look forward to the day when we will be freed completely from sin's presence. When we enter your heavenly kingdom, either through death or at the return of Christ in the resurrection. We thank you for this hope, this assurance that Paul has been teaching and laying down for us and pointing us toward. Give us the grace to grab a hold of it, to to center our lives and our hearts and our minds on it, to live from it, out of it, in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships with one another, in our work in the world. We ask for this humbly and fervently in the name of Jesus. Amen.